Here we go. I just want to quickly say, Richard, thank you for my my pens. Uh, I'm very grateful. You can't even believe how much I brag about you and the pens from Japan. Here we are, June the 4th, 2017, lecture discussion number 285 on the Book of Romans. And yes, we are back last week being a fishing in the snow experience, right? How many of you tried to do something at 38 degrees? Uh, I played a couple of softball games in the hail. It was ridiculous. So that's what we call summer in Alaska. Very cold, as and we suffered through it. Uh, this week, though, was what? Pretty good. We had 76 78 degrees yesterday, so that's a 40-degree difference in four days. So we're complaining about the heat now. That's what we do best up here, whining. Anyway, we missed a Sunday, and no one, therefore, has any idea where we are, which is what we call a normal Sunday. There's not a trace of difference. We just never know. But on these kind of days, after we took a week off, I nonetheless feel, feel, feel. I'm the only one drinking Coke today, for those of you on the internet. It's really funny. They drank things that they didn't like. It was hilarious. I'm the only one that can drink it, apparently. That was really, really funny. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you that the offers of... Uh, okay, nothing is coming in. Not a thing. That's not true. But it was nonetheless very funny. So I feel like I have to recap more than usual uh, after we miss a Sunday, even though, again, uh, there, there's no discernible distinction from our definition of normality here. So I guess this is <coughs> just normal, relative term. For those of you following us by digital means, our vast Internet audience, we're fully, I am fully attentive to the fact that there are variations as to the explication of normal. And our normal here in Cliffside is very inclusive. By inclusive, I mean we're weird, and we know it. So what I'm going to do, were you weird before you came to Cliffside, or did Cliffside make you weird is our motto here. And I'm going to do something that is, I feel a need to do that will come across as, I guess, weird. Okay, enough of that. I've been, probably made no sense. I've been rummaging about... Um, lately, I have had wonderful questions from Shannon and Glenn from Texas. Uh, uh, Sally also has thrown in some. Sally has moved around a little bit. She used to live in Alaska. Uh, Jeff from Pittsburgh actually raised something the other day on the phone, and I have not had a chance. I'm working so much. This is, uh, I'm getting buried in opportunity, I guess. But I'm working every single day. No no day off ever, so it seems. But Jeff from Pittsburgh began to investigate the typology of Absalom and some wonderful things he has, he's uh, brought up, and I thought they were, they were... And you've heard me do Absalom in the past, but I think I'll do it again just because uh, by the rule that if one out there has decided it is interesting, it is interesting to very, very many. I had a wonderful letter from a lady named Sherry that I haven't answered... Sherry, I don't know if you even know we're on TubeFace here. So she was from Sermon Audio. So I've been buried and moving around all of this kind of stuff, trying to get it all sorted out. And where we've been is the connectivity between the reasonings of Satan and the binding of Satan. So I have asked you to look at the 
1,000-year finding of Satan in the abyss and make some kind of relationship with it to the logic or the anatomy of Satan as to how anatomy or the steps of Satan, how it was that he progressed to what he ultimately intended. By intended, I mean how he manifested what he chose to do, which is, of course, as you know, killing as many human beings as he could. Now, he cannot kill, he can not by force. He has to have human cooperation, or physical cooperation. All of that being is that uh, uh, this 1,000-year binding of Satan, nonetheless, is not at all effective in stopping people from choosing death. Satan is completely removed, but yet death is still chosen. That's what I've asked you to consider. So choosing death in the millennium versus choosing death in the tribulation. Another way of putting this is that goats are dead. What does that mean? Why are there goats? Who are the goats? Why are they dead? Goats are dead, dead goats, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. So I wanted you to notice, if you could, the similarities between those who choose the Antichrist in the tribulation and those who choose death in the millennium at age 100. So goats are dead in the tribulation and goats are dead in the millennium. What is the relationship? This, of course, is uh, Isaiah 65. 20, oh, probably 17, but I'll just put 65, 20. It'd be pretty close. Why do people die at 100 in the millennium? And why does anybody choose death in the tribulation? And how do you choose death in the tribulation? Satan is, is on earth. He is, he and the Antichrist have made themselves a singular being. They have, they're operating as a triad almost, not quite, as a dual, as, as, as a duality. And people choose the Antichrist in the tribulation, take the mark, and die. Why do they do that? Why does it then happen in the tribula, or the millennium at age 100? And the pattern of behavior is remarkable between these people that do this. In other words, dead goats are going to choose death. That is what is going to happen. You can't stop them. But why? How is this, whatever it is that Satan is doing, persuasive to people that they would choose eternal damnation or eternal death, eternal separation, condemnation from their creator? We see it from our perspective as a madness, almost an insanity. Who would make this willfully intentional decision. Why do you want to be this way? You can choose life, but you don't. Why not? You see it over and over again. The most primary places that it's inexplicable or seemingly inexplicable is in the tribulation and then in this thousand-year millennium. And I'll get into why that is. How much evidence do you need that God is existing in the tribulation? You've got lots of it. 
You can see the heavenly host in the atmosphere. You can hear his voice. You have the rapture. You have all kinds of things. The power of God. The two witnesses, 144,000, overwhelmingly death is chosen. How many sheep and how many goats are there? There are overwhelmingly more goats. Goats are dead. So what is going on mentally, if you will? Again, we look at it as insanity. Who, uh, who would make this decision? Why not choose goodness? Why not choose life? And But the dead goats, they think differently. In fact, they're going to look upon those who choose life. They're going to look upon the saved, the Christians. Those who choose the blood of Christ, who submit to the authority of Christ, they look to us as the irrational, as the insane ones. That's happening now. I spend a lot of my time, as you know, finding people that don't like me and listening to what they have to say. I do it theologically and I do it uh, with every other aspect, politically, sociologically. I want to know what people who disagree with me think and why they think that. You can see I'm doing it here. I want to know the anatomy or the logic of Satan. I have a limited, finite mind. Uh, my mind is nowhere near the capacity of Satan's. I am, I, I don't fool myself as to what I'm capable of. So can I figure out what he's thinking? Probably not. Can I get closer than I am? I hope so. I'm certainly going to take a run at it. But you read these people on these websites that are far, far. How do I put this? They're as far away from how I think as I think you can get. And I like to know what not like, but I want to know what they re, what they think of me and what I think. And they consider me to be completely without any stability. And people like me. And they hate what I think. Hate it. They're not the least bit shy about how they feel. They see no difference between Christianity and barbarianism. They think we are, in fact, barbaric, evil. Just take the time to read them. It's important that you know. And I should insert here that I, uh, I am not asserting that humanity has the ability to grasp salvation apart from the Holy Spirit. In case you got that inference. The discussion is about the picking up of the axe head. As you most of you know, but again be merciful for the internet audience, we do not have the ability to float the axe head to the surface. This is where Elisha floats the axe head to the surface by throwing in a type of Christ. So the axe head something precious. That's It's typifying the soul of a human being is lost into the Jordan, the judgment or the death and judgment descending river from Adam. And the axe head is lost and there's despair because you cannot replace the axe head. There's no way you can buy another axe head. So this man has lost this and now he is doomed. And Elisha throws a branch that, of course, is another picture of Christ. And the axe head floats to the surface. So, again, Elisha, a profound, incredible portrait of omniscient Jesus Christ. If you want to look for omniscience, 
being portrayed of Christ in the Old Testament, it is the prophet Elisha. He tells the man that lost the axe head, he commands him to pick it up for yourself. In other words, Elisha doesn't go down and pick it up. He tells the man to pick it up. So we're talking about what our, I don't want to say role, it is very small. The Let me put it this way. The New Testament complement to the axe head being floated is or to 2 Kings 6-7. With respect to this issue, in my opinion, note the disclaimer, in my opinion, I think this is Matthew 25:21 also and Matthew 25:23, where Christ says, well done, good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things. This is the parable of the talents. Enter into the joy of the, your Lord. You have been faithful over a few things. It, the inference is, is that it is very small, very few. How small is small? How few is few? So I think that is the accent. Pick it up for yourself. So I'm not saying to you that you have some role you can be proud of in your salvation. You do not. All of these questions are the same. How small is small? How few is few? Why are there two trees in the midst of the garden? Why is there accountability for sin? Why is there judgment? Why is there condemnation? Why is there salvation? Why is there an entering into the joy of the, of the Lord? See, the answer to the question has never been, why does God condemn people? The question is, why does God save anybody? What is the definition of existence? Can there be existence without any free will? All of those questions, all those topics that I just said there are the same. I hope that makes some sense to you. When you're talking about the axe head and free will and enter into the joy of the Lord and you're faithful over very small things, then you're talking about existence. Okay. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Satan, two trees, the millennium, the angelic host, the lake of fire, belief and unbelief, deceived and undeceived, and childbirth. That's where we've been and that's where we are. Let me repeat it. Satan, the two trees, the millennium, the angelic host, the lake of fire, belief and unbelief, deceived and undeceived, childbirth. And I'll even go this far. Childbirth is a type. It's a symbol. So what is it a type of? A type of what? A type of who? So, let's begin now with the thoughts of Satan, his reasonings, if you will. When Satan was created, and no time today to do the timeline. We've done the timeline in the past. You do have to decide when exactly Satan was created, when exactly Satan fell with respect to the timeline of Adam. So you do have to make a decision there for yourselves. I can help you with the decision, but I won't. It is no benefit to you to make, for me to make your decisions. But just for now, Satan is created. What's the next question? Who else is created? When Satan is created. How many is, are created when Satan is created? In what order was everyone created? You get to decide all of this, and but be prepared to defend your positions. Next week, there will be a, a test. It's an essay. Story problems. 
was Satan created first of all the created beings, or did all of them get created instantly en masse, if you will? How's that for? Uh, what, yes, thank you for whistling at my, my level of education or culture. It went up two points just with that. Huh? I took French in high school, made me good at crossword puzzles. That in German. I could always say I can't find my rubber, rubber overshoes in German. That was what I was really gifted at, in case you're wondering. But it did help me with crossword puzzles, which I take to, in order to determine whether or not I have onset dementia. That's my testing mechanism. Back to Satan. When Satan was created, how many are created with him? Did he get created first? What do you think? I will assume that the plurality of the class has God creating the entire angelic order in some kind of successive pattern. How long did it take? How much time do you suppose that God created the angelic host and the angelic environment? All the aspects of the angelic environment. Have you ever seen a description of an angel? Yes, you have. Where is it? Elisha again. Elisha is going to tell Gehazi, don't worry, we're okay. He shows him the angelic war machine. And they are equipped. They do not come with robes. They come with armament. So, how long did it take? How much time do you suppose for the creation of the angelic order and the angelic environment. Do you suppose that it was a seven event? At some point there exists an angelic realm after you've decided how long it took to get there and what the pattern was. And God, you, his word, uh, once again, I, I believe absolutely correct. Now, some will say that it is simultaneous with the creation of the earth. And they'll use the stars They'll say God created the stars, but the wording is not being there. It is source of light, generational source. You see, there's two kinds of light in Genesis. I have the primable light or the intrinsic light, the light that is light, that is not created, the non-created light. And then I have the light generating sources that are created light, if you will. In other words, the light itself and then light bulbs, if you wish. As you know, the stars out there, the stars that you see, are mostly hydrogen and helium. They're not complex at all in comparison to the organic Earth. So there is a distinctive element here. But God created from nothing the angelic realm and the angelic beings. How long did he do that? Uh, I, I want you, I'll be benevolent here. I know, how kind of me, huh? I, you can apply our time, our contemporary modern time system, to this creative occasion. By that, I mean analyze the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, at, and how many hours have elapsed between the creation of each of them and what order they are. If you wish to put it into hours or minutes. And decide for yourself, is there a creative order? Was there a creative order on the organic earth? Yes. Why? Could he have done it instantly, all in one second? Of course he could, but he did not. 
I submit to you that that pattern is probably replicated in the angelic realm. So you decide how it works. <coughs> but what I want you to do now, take and I want you to analyze the angels. Satan. I'm going to separate Satan out from the angels, the cherubim, and the seraphim. So I'm going to have four categories. I'm going to have the anointed cherub, the cherubim, the seraphim, and the angels. You could you could complete completely make distinctions. You can have Michael and Gabriel uh, separate from the angelic beings themselves. But I want you to analyze all of them now. They're all there. We don't know how they got there. Oh, we do know how they got there. We don't know what order or what time. But they're all there, and I want you to look at them at one hour into their existence. So they're one hour old. Describe them to yourselves. What were they thinking one hour old? How much cognitive function did they possess? In other words, were they formed with full functioning intellectual capacity? Or was there a progressive period? Something that corresponds with our human infancy. See, there are positions out there that said that Adam was, was created as a infant. You will find that very common. And that he had a progressive time frame to his maturity. That's a common position. It's very ancient, actually. And I believe, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but I believe that, um, well, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say who I think holds it the strongest because I'm not completely aware of that. But I know it's there. It's not the common position. The common position is, is that Adam was formed full. Now, I'm asking you, is that how the angelic realm, all of it, or was there some kind of progressive time period? Did God equip his angels with complete maturity, or did they do this? Did they learn? What I mean by that is, did they learn and learn upon the learning? So the very act of learning became more complex and more capable. Is there a discovery process with the angels? And if so, how long was the discovery process? Does God like to put his beings in environments where they have to discover what the environment is and how it works and what it does and why it's there and who it's for? Does he do that? Did you do that with your children? Some of you locked them away in closets and are now uh, out on parole. But uh, most people did not. You don't. Isn't, it, isn't there a, a tremendous joy in seeing the wonderment, the exploration, the astonishment from a puppy or a child or a kitten? Yes, there is. Uh, would God have eliminated that from the angelic beings? Would he have done, did he do away with the wonderment, the exploration, the astonishment? And without that aspect, what is the implication on existence? If you don't have that, how does that affect your existence? If you are made fully formed mature being with no memories of learning anything until you were fully functional. 
You didn't have a progressive learning system. You had an installed one. What is the impact on existence? Is this what God did is the question. You get to decide for yourself. I have no desire to interfere with your free will. I never have. I never will. I would purpose that you uh, can you likewise consider the creation of Adam and the building of Eve and the angelic uh, realm and maintain consistency between both of them so that you'll be more defendable. Okay. Next. Satan is the anointed cherub, Ezekiel 28:14. He is the seal of perfection, Ezekiel 28:12. He is full of wisdom, he is perfect in beauty. That is Satan. That's how he is described by God. So how beautiful is he? How much wisdom does he have? He's perfect in beauty. Satan was the highest ranking being and he was in Eden and in authority over it. Ezekiel 28:13 and it's called the garden of God. So Satan is the if you will the king of the garden of God. Ezekiel 28:13. Therefore thus Satan and Adam have this in common. Each one was or had the highest standing of their kind. Satan is the anointed cherub, the king of Eden. Adam is the federal head of all things, especially humanity. And both are placed in Eden. Both are placed in what is called the garden of God. And note that Ezekiel 28.13 describes Satan's Edens as mineral, fiery stones. You walk amongst the fiery stones, he says of Satan, whereas Adam's Eden was organic vegetable. So Ezekiel 28.13 describes Satan's Eden completely different, not completely but significantly different than Adam's Eden, which is described in Genesis 1 through 3. So, again, you have a challenge. You have to place the two Edens, if you want to call them that, in order. Which came first, the mineral fiery stone Eden of Satan or the physical organic Eden of Adam, the vegetable Eden? Which is the same thing as saying, did Satan... Was he king of Eden before Adam? Or was Adam and king of Eden before Satan? Which is your view? Or were they contemporary? If Satan and Adam were concurrent, then were the two Edens in separate realities? Does that make sense? Because they are described completely different. Clearly, they're not the same Eden in the sense they could be the same location, but they are not the same construction. If Satan and Adam were concurrent, then the two Edens are in separate locations or separate realities. That's some of your choices. To reword it a bit, is there one Eden with independent successive kings or two Edens with simultaneous kings? If you decide there's one Eden with two kings, that one replaced the other, then you have a timeline issue, don't you? You have to decide how much time occurred between one king and the next king. Got all that? If you have them simultaneous, you have a location problem. And all of that is background, which most of you have heard before, but once again, be merciful and kind to the ever-changing, vast Internet audience who likely has never heard any of it and won't ever hear it again. And all of this leads to Satan's five wills of Isaiah 14, which we have covered. Five wills, the five I wills of Satan. 
Satan, the first thing that he did was swell with pride over his capabilities. The Bible makes that uh, demonstratively defendable. And then he proceeded to demonstrate his conceit with a murderous rage. So that is the order. First, pride. Pride came first. In other words, the thought process. First is the thought process. First is the mental property. And then is the physical act. Someone says to me, I I acted without thinking. I go, well, you just lied to me. You think, then you act. That's how it works. The thoughts of Satan were pride. He had tremendous pride. And then he proceeded to demonstrate his conceit with a murderous rage. Chaos came to the stillness. Disorder and havoc came to the peace. Fear and hysteria to restfulness. Death came to life. So Satan was proud of something. And the way to prove that he was correct about it, or what he thought was correct, uh, was to cause death to life. And both death came to life both in the heavenly estate and then into the organic physical Eden, or the earth. How much time elapsed between each attack? Who was attacked first? Was the heavenly estate attacked before the earth, or was the simultaneous attacking? So those are your choices again. What was Satan thinking? That's ultimately what we're trying to do. This powerful, brilliant being, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Notice that perfect in beauty. Is he still perfect in beauty, or has he changed? Is there anything in the Bible that describes a changing of Satan's appearance? Well, you have to go look at that crawling in the dust stuff, won't you? Is he still perfect in beauty, is the question. Does Satan look the same as he once did, or has he changed? And if he's changed, when? And if he's changed, why? And does everyone in the heavenly estate know that he's changed? And how does that affect them? If he's no longer perfect in beauty, that's a big deal. It leads me to ask whether or not I will be perfect in beauty in the next, uh, uh, in the eternal order. I doubt it. Huh? I'm going to be a Coke can, she said. More reason that Coca-Cola should support me if I have an eternity of this. Uh, I think perfect in beauty is something that is astonishing. I think Satan was astonishing. Uh, did that contribute to his pride? Do you know any beautiful people? I'll look around. Not uh, never mind. <laughs> uh, you're certainly not looking at one now, baby. I can tell you that. I have had people come to me. I've had men come to me. I shouldn't even say this. They'll know who I'm talking about. But I've had lots of people come to me and tell me how beautiful they are. And I just go, buy a mirror. Come on. Get a magnifying glass. What is wrong with you? But it's very common behavior. And I see the conceit that comes with beauty. Satan had something that I think is improbable for beautiful people. He had wisdom. He had mental capacity. 
most beautiful people are dumb as hammers. Just how it is. I'm not saying attractive people. I'm saying those who are have physical attributes that are unusual. Most of them are just a bag of rocks. Which is why we should never listen to actors. If I ranted on this before, athletes, actors, stop listening to them. They're all idiots. And they know they're idiots. And look at what you do. If I'm an idiot and I know I'm an idiot and I tell you something idiotic and you go, wow, then what have I learned about you? You're an idiot. You're doing them a disservice. The best thing we can do for the acting community and the media community in general is make sure they know that they're idiots. It's important to them to have a proper self-assessment. Quit worshiping these people. They're idiots. I had a great thing on the election. Somebody wrote this. They said, you're mad because my idiot beat your idiot. Idiot. I thought that was very funny. (laughs) Okay, where am I? Lost as usual. This is a pride-caused act. Satan has a pride, and that causes murder. Murder results from the thoughts of his pride, which raises the most obvious of all the obvious questions. What is he proud of that causes murder? Is he proud of his appearance? Is he proud of his intellect? Is he proud of his uh, any other capabilities that he may have? Is he a good trumpet player? What's, what's making him swell with pride? I don't know if I said this, but Eric and Lindsay sent me a birthday uh, thing that from a band singing happy birthday to me somewhere in uh, New Orleans. And the band had a trumpet player and a banjo player at the same time without being arrested. That was fantastic music. My point is, is what does, what does Satan have that results in the murder? What, what is the pride that he has developed? Consider that Satan enters into a creation, one in which he is given the highest status. And he would know, he's full of wisdom, he would know that this is a creation, that what he is in is a creation, and that he was a creature in the creation, that he himself is a creation, and that he has been given existence. To be full of wisdom demands that he have that understanding. So he has all of that, and he also would know that the entirety of the creation was dependent, and he would know upon whom it is dependent. Therefore, he would know that he is dependent. He is not independent. He would know it immediately if he's full of wisdom. He would certainly discover it if there's a progressive time element here. You see, creation cannot exist without being sustained. That is a fundamental principle. Two incredibly complex works require requiring unthinkable, unimaginable power, omniscience, omnipresent. What I'm saying is is that creation and sustaining that creation are incredible works, unthinkable intelligence to do it. So I have the creation of all things, if you want to think of it that way, and then I have the subsequent sustaining of all things. What is required to sustain the creation? And that is why Isaac Newton declared the gravitational force to be the mind and the will of God. That's why he did that. He said, this has got to be God. And he decided that gravity is a force as opposed to uh, Newton, I'm sorry, Einstein's relativity that says gravity is more of a perception. And that debate I can digress into for the rest of the week. But I won't. 
control myself. Satan has consciousness and he knows he has consciousness and I submit that he has no doubt as to the origin of his consciousness. Not like us, us dumb people. We think consciousness comes out of physical material even though it is a non-physical entity. We are idiots. I'll go back to idiots again. But Satan did not have that. He had no doubt as to the origin, the source of his consciousness, and the sustaining power that held his consciousness. And this is where we intersect with Sally's question from Isaiah 65, 17 through 20. And I'm going to reread that today. And I'm going to make you look at the two beholds this time a lot more carefully. So here we go, Isaiah 65, 17 through 20. For behold, I create... New heavens and a new earth. Covered that a little bit last time because that is amazing. This is the millennium he's talking about. We established that. It's not Genesis 1. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. There's evidence that uh, that it is a new creative event. And be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Which the implication is, is that they are, Jerusalem is not a rejoicing now and the people are not a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. This is different from what was occurring before. This is the millennium and now God is going to rejoice. Christ is going to rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. Why? Because now the Jews have come to Christ. And he rejoices. When you come to Christ, when you come to God, he rejoices over you. He's thrilled. He has great joy. Want to make God happy? Believe him. Believe that he is Jesus Christ. Believe that he has sacrificed. Believe that he has humbled himself. He provides his blood, his flesh for your eternity. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her. Jerusalem nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be cursed. So, that curse takes you back to Satan and Adam in Genesis 3, doesn't it? Perhaps you might remember me saying a while back that Adam did not fall in unbelief. He knew that Satan had deceived Eve, and he knew that Eve didn't believe something that she should have believed. But Adam did not have any unbelief. The woman fell in unbelief. The woman did not believe something about God. That helps us understand Satan's thought processes, right? She was in unbelief. She was deceived, but not Adam. Adam sins while maintaining belief. Adam is never deceived by Satan. 1 Timothy 2, 14 through 15. So important. Nonetheless, she's going to be saved in childbirth, it says. 1 Timothy 2, 15. What does that mean? Childbirth is a type of something. What is the most common typological assignment to childbirth? Do you know? What's that? Yeah, new life. It is the, the woman in great travail great pain uh, delivers new life. And it is equated to what? It is equated to the pushing out of the soul spirit, the mind, from the body of death. 
great pain and suffering in death pushes out your spirit. So childbirth has a death, death symbolatry or symbolism. Childbirth also is a type of Jesus Christ. So now, death and she shall be saved in childbirth. What does that mean? Does it mean childbirth, saved through death? Saved through Christ? The answer is both. Death is for our sake, remember. In the millennial rule of Christ, God himself, in the flesh, on his throne, in Jerusalem, in his garden, he is now the what? He is the king of Eden. He is the king in the garden of God. I have Satan. I have Adam. I have Christ, the second or the last Adam. So I have three kings of Eden. Right, what did I just do about with Jerusalem? I have made it the loca- its location in Eden. I'll defend that later. You go ahead and attack me anytime you wish. How big was the garden? Where was the original garden? It was the post-flood garden look like versus the pre-flood garden. Off we go. Where were the two trees? Jesus Christ is now the king on his throne. He calls himself king. He is in the garden of God, his garden. He's God. He's the ancient of days, the creator of all things, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. And he's on the throne and everyone knows it in the millennium. There is no doubters. Not a doubter anywhere. Can I find a doubter right now that Christ is is God? I can find them by the hundreds within a half a mile of here. But in the millennium, there is no doubt who this is on the throne, who he is, both in the sense that he is God and who he is in the sense that he is God-man, perfect humanity. No one doubts it. So there he is. What would you expect? Compliance? You ain't going to get it. What do you get instead? Revelation 27 through 9. What do you get in the millennium? You get billions and billions and billions massing together to attack God. It doesn't go well. That's the greatest duh of all of humanity. It seems inexplicable Here I have God himself. This is pure, absolute goodness, love, mercy, life. He's sustaining your life. And billions and billions and billions hate him with all the passion and emotion and vigor and force that they can muster. You see the the same thing repeating itself again? Why Why does this happen? Is Satan there? No, he's not. He is bound up. And it seems inexplicable, but it's not. It isn't a mystery, actually. It's quite understandable. And so let's back up and try to figure it out and see these uh, who die at 100 years old. I have people in the millennium at 99364 who do not, who hate Jesus Christ, 
who are going to die in 24 hours, all they have to do is go where? All they have to do is humble themselves. Remember, he tells you all the time, humble yourself. What does he mean by that? Start tying that to Satan now. Humble yourself and live. And these are particularly relevatory, these hundred-year-olders, of the darkness that grows in a sinful human mind. This is the Romans 124-32 mind. And God gives over to those who have this mind, Romans 1, 28 through 32. They hate him. They loathe him. He allows them to do that. He does not compel you to love him. But doesn't force you at all. I could read Romans. I'll do it next week. But you should as well. It's the debased mind, this, this evil, murderous, hateful mindset that comes. Go read it. It's exposed to you all over the world now. The whole point is, is they know that there's knowing here. This is not a matter of ignorance. It is the opposite. With full, complete knowledge, these who die at 100 years in the millennial rule of Christ do so with total intent. And thus, their decision is reducible to the obvious. You can die at 100 years in sin or live in eternity with Christ. That's your decision that you get to make if you are in the millennium, unless you entered the millennium saved. If you're born in the millennium, let me point that out. If you're born in the millennium, the decision you make is die at a hundred years in sin or live in eternity with Christ. And, and it's that plain. It's as evident as it could possibly be, and it's not unlike the thought experiment of the early church. See if I can make you... Think like me, which makes you what? Weird. That's exactly right. The early church had a thought experiment, and they asked, why doesn't God take the saved immediately from the earth into heaven? Wouldn't that make a lot of sense? In other words, you're in church. The emotional pastor makes you cry, steals your money while you can't see, and then you come forward and you pray whatever he says for you to pray, and he signs it for you, and you're saved. I'm being facetious, right? Aren't I? Yes. Is that what happens? Yeah, it is. Okay? Does that prayer that you pray that he gives you and signs and gives you a certificate of your salvation, what is his certificate, the pastor? What is it worth? Spit. That's being polite. Anyway, lost my way again. Why doesn't God take the saved immediately from the earth into heaven? As soon as you get saved, boom, you're gone. Poof, you disappear. Wouldn't that be cool? So you come to church with your family. Your family's in the front row. No one ever sits in the front row here except Bonnie and Bill. But let's say you do sit in the front row and you raise your hand. Does raising your hand save you? Is, is this a physical act going to save you? But you raise your hand and you twirl three times and you hop on one leg and you get to be saved. And God makes you disappear. Poof, takes you. Pop, you're gone. What's your family going to do? And the early church wrestled with this. Why doesn't God, Why wouldn't that be the greatest of all witnesses as opposed to our miserable lives where we lie, cheat, and steal? And we don't mow our grass. Our dog goes to their yard. 
why wouldn't that would be a fantastic witness, wouldn't it? You're saved, God takes you. Maybe you hear a voice. Hi, Steve. Come here. Boom. Here's two angels. Come and get you. Everybody sees it. Why doesn't God do it that way? He does not. But now compare that to the hundred year old that is about to die. He's ninety nine three sixty four. The next day, what's going to happen to him? He hates God. And a fantastic explanation. It's as physical a witness as you can imagine. How many of them are dying? How many hundred-year-olds that hate God? At the end, there's billions and billions and billions, like the sand on the sea. How many do you think there is after a hundred years? How many of the first generation hates God of the millennium? What do you think? Fifty percent? He's there on the throne. How about the tenth generation? Is it a hundred percent? They all hate him? How do you hate God? Would that be a powerful witness to the unbelievers who remain if God would send two angels to get everyone that's saved? Wouldn't that convert the entirety of the world, you would say? The answer is no. The answer is no. And here at Isaiah 65, 17, and 20, we get the, uh, we get the inverse or the converse. These deaths at 100 do not occur in secrecy in a vacuum. For those who die, they do so without being deceived. We have undeceived dyers. That is very interesting. They have God there. The woman died being deceived, Genesis 3. Not so the hundred-year-olders. They are knowing, not deceived, choosing death. Wrap your head around that. In an odd way, their decision is such that it is a repeating of the two trees of Genesis 2 and 3. Jesus Christ, the light of life, is physically present. He is accessible. Anyone can come. Anyone can see. Anyone can take of the tree of life. He's the tree of life, isn't he? The tree of life is a symbol of him. You go to Christ, what do you get? He is there. He is willing that none should perish. He is able. He will save all who come. Back to picking up the axe head. Good faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord, right? But he will give those who so choose over to their desires to be evil. God will not force you to love him, to obey him, to reconcile with him, to believe him. God will then, therefore, back to dead goats. Did I remove dead goats? No. What does God do with goats and sheep? He separates them, doesn't he? He separates the sheep from the goats. And God will divide the light from the darkness. What he does. The good from the evil. The day from the night. What he said at Genesis 1-4, that is what he will do all the way to Revelation 20 seven through the end. God puts an end to sin run amok. He confines it to a place prepared for Satan and his angels. 
the one hunderders of which there are a multitude harbor no misunderstanding, no mistakenness. They they have none of that. There is no illusionary aspect to their thinking. They are a witness. Their deaths are testimonial to the 99ers. And that brings us to the now famous refrain. If I'm 99 and I see all these guys that are 100ers die, this famous refrain, refrain you, might rem- you might remember, what difference does it make? It makes none. The 99ers all become 100ers, knowing full well. Why is this even possible? Why does man and angels have the capacity to hate their creator and the sustainer of their own creation? That, of course, is the defining question, isn't it? Which returns us to Satan. Satan knew that he, there, that he and therefore every angel could choose to rebel against their creator and sustainer. He figured that out. How did he figure it out? He did it first. Why did he do it? At what point in Satan's existence did he recognize that he had the freedom to choose darkness, to hate God, to reject God's authority over him? How many days, how many years before he said, I can choose freedom? And what his definition of freedom. I can, I can separate myself from God. What we can more so define is that Satan filled himself with this massive conceit. Once that decision is made and understood that he had that capacity, then we now see all of these Proverbs, right? Proverbs 8.13, pride and arrogance, the evil way. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes shame. The most one that's famous, of course, is Proverbs 16.18. Pride goes before destruction. That describes Satan. And we know that whatever it was that Satan was proud of, Satan's pride is displayed, is made, uh, demonstrated, made manifest by murder, killing, death, lies. It's also obvious that Satan presented himself as the alternative with the freedom to willfully choose being an attribute given to the angels. Satan would make himself the choice. Choose me over God. But notice in the millennium, you can't choose Satan. He's bound. He's removed. So, in Genesis, what do we do to the tree of life? We protect it. But in the millennium, what do we do to the tree of death? We protect it. So you're protected from Satan in the millennium. He's removed. The tree of death is guarded. The tree of life is made available. Reversal of Genesis 3 there's some interesting, there's some valuable information. What, back to where we go. What specific prideful thought brought Satan to activate his proof? He's proving something. Proving something that he believes is true. What I mean by that, Satan is proving something that he believes is true about himself. What is it? And so next week. We will look at the evidence and come to a conclusion. Or you can do it yourself without me. Most of you already have.